Well, how do you feel when an innocent person is condemned? When a person is plainly innocent and uh, people know it, but he's condemned anyway. When justice is perverted, it makes us angry, doesn't it? It makes us angry that an innocent person would be condemned. Nothing good could come from that. Nothing. Today we see in this Bible passage uh, the condemnation of an innocent man, the condemnation of Jesus. And everyone in the story is guilty. And it should make us angry. And it should make us ask, what good could come from this? Just have a look at the, the characters in the story, uh, in this event. Uh, Judas. Judas betrayed his friend. And as he says there in verse 3, he realises uh, he's betrayed innocent blood. A terrible crime, according to the Old Testament. And he hands them hands Jesus over to the leaders, and the leaders are determined to kill Jesus. They're entrusted with the Jewish legal code, but they form a kangaroo court and uh, bring in false witnesses. But they've got nothing on Jesus, only his claim to be the Messiah. Yet they agree to condemn an innocent man. And so verse 1, they make their plans to get him killed. Verse 2, they hand over the innocent man to the governor. Verse 12, they accuse him of some political crime. And verse 20, they persuade the crowd to kill him. Then there's Pilate. He hears the accusations. He's amazed that Jesus doesn't answer. It's obvious to Pilate that Jesus is innocent. He knows that, verse 18, it's only out of self-interest that these leaders are accusing him. He even gets a plea from his wife. Verse 19, God, it seems, has given her a dream. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. And Pilate has got all the might of Rome behind him. He's entrusted with the Roman legal code. And yet instead of standing up to the leaders and dismissing the charge, he decides to try his luck with democracy, with asking the people. And so he abandons justice. He abandons an innocent man. And so finally the crowd are given a choice, a choice between two Jesuses, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah. Pilate offers them a well-known prisoner, probably a terrorist. Which Jesus do you want? He asks. And he knows, he knows Jesus is innocent. The crowd knows it. Verse 23, what crime has he committed? And despite the Jewish loathing of Roman rule and their loathing of crucifixion, they cry out, crucify him. They condemn an innocent man. And that day, everyone was guilty. Back in 1989, uh, five teenagers in New York were charged with the brutal rape of a woman in Central Park. There was no physical evidence. None of their DNA matched the victim. But she was a white woman. And they were some black 
boys. And so there was a public outcry against these Central Park Five. A certain hotel owner named Donald Trump took out full-page articles in the newspaper calling for the death penalty. And they were convicted and they were condemned to years in prison. Twelve years later, the perpetrator, the real perpetrator, the real guilty man, confessed. And these five innocent men had been condemned. And it ought to make us angry. Here is one truly innocent man, not just innocent of the charge, but innocent of everything. And his friend betrayed him. The leaders attacked him. The governor abandoned him and the crowd condemned him. What greater perversion of justice could there be? But it's not just a perversion of justice, is it? Because Jesus is not just an innocent man. This is not just innocent blood. This is Jesus. The Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven, who's going to be sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. This is God's Son. Do you remember the parable of the tenants? They kept on rejecting and killing God's messengers. And now they're about to kill God's son. You see it in the charge, don't you? He's the king of the Jews. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Messiah? It's not just the perversion of justice against an innocent man. It's the rejection of God even by God's own people. A couple of years ago now, I went to the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. It's a witness, a witness to evil, where people were tricked and worked to death and gassed to death. They have the shoes, the real shoes there of the adults and the children uh, who were sent to the gas chambers. I read in a travel guide, uh, if there is a, a more moving museum experience in the world, we are yet to encounter it. There could be no more perversion of justice than this, no bigger rejection of God. And yet, you and I, having encountered it so many times, we've read the story, it's so familiar that we are no longer moved by it. But it should move us. It should make us angry. And yet there's more. Even though it's a perversion of justice and a rejection of God, and they're all guilty, there are some here who reject their responsibility. Did you notice that? Back in verse 3, Judas returns the silver, the money. I've betrayed innocent blood, he says. And what do the leaders say? Verse 4, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. It's sort of true. They're the, not the ones who betrayed Jesus. They're the ones who paid Judas. They want to kill him. They've planned this. They've accused him. They've condemned him. 
And yet they say that's your responsibility, not ours. They take the money and they don't know what to do with it because it's blood money. They can't keep it. And so they engage in some money laundering. In fact, their money laundering is so good with this money, they come up smelling of roses. They make it so clean. They make it look like an act of charity as they buy a field as a burial ground for foreigners. The leaders refuse to take responsibility and Pilate's worse, isn't he? It's obvious that he knows Jesus is innocent and yet he puts it on the crowd. He refuses to take responsibility. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. He's the judge. He's the one making the decision. He's responsible. But he tries to put it on the crowd. And he thinks he can wash his hands of it. At this time, hand sanitizer uh, is a real prize commodity, isn't it? Well, their hands will be clean. But they are not innocent. Hand sanitizer, water, cannot clean guilt, can it? The leaders, Pilate, they try to reject their responsibility, but they are not clean. And Jesus' blood is on them. This rejecting responsibility is ugly, isn't it? And we don't do money laundering. We don't ceremonially wash our hands to try and prove that we're innocent and reject responsibility. But to be honest, I sometimes make excuses. My instinctive reaction is to, to not take responsibility when I've forgotten to do something. I make excuses. I make out that it doesn't matter. I try and shift the blame. And you can't shift the blame. You can't wash your hands of something you're responsible for. What should I do? What should we do with responsibility? Well, it's striking, isn't it? The two villains in the story, they show us what to do. Take Judas, for example. We often question, don't we? Uh, was Judas forgiven? Will Judas be in heaven? The fact that he committed suicide doesn't answer that question, does it? It's possible for a Christian who's joined to Jesus and forgiven to be in such despair and desperation that, that, she, forget, that she commits suicide. That's possible and still belong to Jesus and Jesus will not let her go. Was that true for Judas? We don't know. That's not Matthew's focus. But he does want us to see how to accept responsibility. Do you see what Judas says? Verse 4, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. That's how to accept responsibility. And it's not just Judas. 
Look at the crowd. The crowd are guilty, aren't they? And how do they respond when Pilate says, it's your responsibility? They could have argued the toss and say, no, you can't do that, Pilate. You're responsible too. But they simply accept their responsibility. Look at verse 25. All the people answered, his blood is on us. It is. It is on them. And they accept responsibility. The leaders and Pilate, they refuse to accept responsibility. But Judas and the crowds, they actually show us how to accept responsibility. And we need to learn from them. But it's not just a matter of seeing how not to reject responsibility and how to accept responsibility. As we read this story, as we see that every person in the story is guilty except for Jesus, how we see how, how they seek to pass the buck, then we can't help but remember, can we? Remember the garden and remember Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. They rejected God, just like the people here reject God. They wanted to pass the buck, do you remember, and blame someone else. They refused to accept responsibility. And that's not, not just their story, is it? It's all of our stories. We reject God and we want to reject responsibility. And so it's no wonder, is it, that when God actually turned up, when he walked into the courtroom, the leaders, Pilate, the crowd, and we would have done the same. We would have rejected him and cried, crucify him. You see that a little, I think. Matthew has been calling them the crowd. But then verse 25, when they take responsibility, he says, all the people. And his blood is on us and on our children. In the last few years, there's, there's been a really helpful movement. Hashtag Me Too. As we've heard about the uh, sexual harassment, the mistreatment of women in all sorts of contexts. So women have told their story and said, me too. And in response to that, some men have reflected on their own involvement, on turning a blind eye on sexually harassing women themselves. And there's been a, another hashtag. Hashtag it was me. Men who have not just been aware that this happens, not just been against it, but who have admitted their responsibility. God wants us to say, it was me. When we read the story of the greatest perversion of justice and the ultimate rejection of God, he wants us to say, we would have done the same. We have done the same. 
So this event should not just profoundly move us, not just make us angry that an innocent man is condemned, that God's Son himself is rejected. It should not just make us angry. It should make us ashamed. As we sing those words, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was me. It was us. His blood is on us. But even as we see the perversion of justice, and as we see the rejection of God's Son, even as we say, it was me, we see good news as well. For this perversion of justice and rejection of God, it was all foreseen by Jesus, wasn't it? It was all planned by his Father. And when Jesus saw this cup of wrath in his hand, he asked his Father to take it away, but the Father was silent. And so the Son remained silent when he was accused. And do you remember what Jesus said about his blood as he offered the cup to his disciples at that last supper? This is the blood of the new covenant given for many for the forgiveness of sins. His blood was being given for sinners like us. And what do the crowd say when they accept responsibility? They say more than they realize. Have a look at it there. In verse 25, they say, His blood is on us. They're terrible words to say that the blood of Jesus, an innocent man, the Son of God, God's King, His blood is on us. But if you've been reading Matthew's Gospel, you know that the best thing that can happen to you is to have Jesus' blood on you. You see, water on your hands doesn't wash away guilt, but there is something that does. The blood of Jesus washes away guilt. And so for those who accept their responsibility like the crowd, for those who see Jesus' death and say, it was me, his blood is on me. The good news is that his blood is on you. His blood that washes away sin because it paid for sin. His blood is on us and we are washed clean. The Central Park Five knew they were innocent. And they languished in jail for years. What a joy it would have been to be declared innocent and to be set free. What a joy it is for us to know that we are not innocent. To know that we are guilty. That it was me. That his blood is on us. What a joy to know that his blood is on us. Even when we can't meet together, even when we can't celebrate Easter 
together. We have so much to celebrate. And finally, can you see? Can you see how bad this event is? The greatest perversion of justice. The ultimate rejection of God. That ought to make us angry. That ought to make us ashamed. But can you see how good it is? For his blood is on us. And we have the joy of being declared innocent. Can you see that God... God can bring good out of something that is really bad. More than that, actually, God's in control. And in his kindness, God doesn't just bring good out of bad. He plans good out of bad. And what a comfort that is in this current crisis with so much bad that is happening. To know that God can bring good out of bad, that God plans to bring good out of bad. What a comfort at a time like this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see this event afresh and to see what it is that you have done to see that his blood, the blood of Jesus, an innocent man, your own king, that his blood is on us. To be able to say, it was me. I deserve to die and he died for me, for I rejected him. Father, help us to see that and to own that and to accept responsibility. And Father, we thank you so much that when we accept responsibility, truly his blood is on us and we are declared innocent, forgiven. Father, we thank you. We thank you, especially at a time like this, that we know that you can bring good out of bad. Indeed, that you plan to bring good out of bad. Help us to trust you to do that now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.